For today, we're looking at Exodus chapter 17, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Exodus 17, the first seven verses. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we thank you for your eternal word that speaks to us today. And Father, we need you to speak to us. We need you to break into our cold and distant hearts. We need you to feed our souls with your living water, with your resurrection life. Because, Father, the change we need is not one that we can bring on our own. It is only through you breaking into our hard hearts can we be made new and love you and live in harmony with your, with your word. So we pray that you would do this now, today, God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, when you saw what sermon passage we had, maybe some of you wondered if I had forgotten Easter Sunday. <laughs> this is probably not your typical Easter passage. Probably the first time you've heard uh, this sermon preached for Easter. Uh, but then again, nothing has been typical this year. And so I figured, why don't we just change some more stuff up? And I don't know about you, but Easter can roll around and it can almost feel a little bit like everyone is supposed to feel all happy and joyful, you know, and you greet everyone with Christ is risen and a smile, but it can feel fake, right? Because you're trying to talk about how, how great it is that Christ is risen, but you're saying in your heart, but my grandma died last year. Well, he's alive, but I'm stuck in a living death. I'm surrounded by everything I need to be happy, and yet I feel so empty day after day. I mean, maybe you're afraid to say it, but Easter can feel like a big joke sometimes. And as you're thinking about it, and you look and you see the Easter bunny sitting next to a bunch of colorful eggs, suddenly you get it. Rabbits don't lay eggs, and people don't rise from the dead. But maybe we need a, the true Easter message like never before. And not the commercialized 
message of glitter and, and candy and rabbits that lay eggs. But the original message, one that maybe we've kind of gotten dull to, but I think this passage shows the heart of it. And maybe this is what we need. It's ironic because I've heard sometime over the past 10 or so years, the most well-known Bible verse has shifted from John 3.16 to Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. And what's ironic about that is I think we're living in one of the most judgmental ages I've ever seen. I read an article earlier this month about this young woman named Alexi McCammond, and she was about to become the editor of Teen Vogue, which I'm sure is very high journalistic standards, and yet she was forced to resign because of things, as she was about to step into that role, she was forced to resign because of things that she had tweeted 10 years ago. She's 27. I mean, those tweets were from when she was 17 years old. And who of us could stand up to the scrutiny of the things we did or said when we're 27? I mean, we're in a time where people crave justice and have no way of offering forgiveness. And the only way to atone for someone's wrongs is to make that offender suffer. Right? Whether it's by canceling them or with a Twitter mob or your own taking violence and justice into your own hands. And every one of you struggle to forgive. Some of you here, you're nursing wounds from decades ago, and you want to get over, you want to forgive, but you can't. It continually hijacks your life, and you can't let it go no matter how hard you try. Some of you are struggling to forgive yourself. You're your own worst critics. And everything that bad that happens to you, you have the sneaking suspicion that it's the universe getting back at you for those mistakes you made. Every day is lived in this mental courtroom where you're prosecuting the wrongs of others, pointing out what others did wrong and, and defending your own actions. I'm not guilty, or at least not as guilty as they are. And every day you, start, you wake up and it's the same. You start all over again trying to say, well, I'm not the problem they are, or I'm not that bad. And we're stuck in this spiral. Our society is stuck in this downward spiral of tit-for-tat judgmentalism against one another. And the only way to stop it is for someone to step in the heart of that whirlwind and forgive. And to forgive means that you absorb the wrong. You take the pain. And you don't try to get even. You don't hold a grudge. But you're willing to suffer for someone's wrongs against you, even someone that you can't stand. And it is impossible for us to do that. And that's why we're looking at this passage, to show you that our only hope to end the spiral of judgment in our world is to realize that Christ was judged. That's what I want you to remember this morning. Christ was judged. And we're going to look at our passage in three ways, the complaint, the verdict, and then the rock. So we're, first, the complaint. We're working through the book of Exodus in our normal Sunday services, and I'd encourage you to come back next week as we work through this really great book in a chapter by chapter. But we've jumped ahead a number of chapters for Easter. And so Israel has now been miraculously redeemed from Egypt, from this genocide they were experiencing. And they're traveling through the desert, a very nasty, hot, dry desert, to their new home. And if you've ever driven from here to L.A., you know there are certain places you don't want your car to break down. 
Right? Because especially in July, because you could fry an egg on that asphalt. There's no water or gas stations for miles. There's nothing. And it's the same for the Israelites who are traveling through the Sinai Peninsula. Plenty of dust of sand and sand, but little else. And they're continually running low on supplies. In Exodus 15, they go three days without finding a water supply. My favorite complaint of the Israelites is in Exodus 14. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness, Moses? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done for us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen if, when we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It is better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Now, they have a slightly selective memory right, of all the justices they felt there. That's how we are. And we told you this would happen. And that brings us into our passage. And notice it says that the, the Israelites aren't just kind of traveling randomly through the desert, but they're going from place to place as the Lord commanded. God is their wilderness guide. And, and a good guide is there to keep your first backpacking trip from being a complete disaster. Right? There are all kinds of things that you don't know about that can really ruin the trip. Right? Like the temptation to drink that crystal clear mountain water from that creek high up, not knowing about this little thing called giardia, or better known as beaver fever, right? And you think, I'm going to drink this water, only to regret it about 2 a.m. that morning when you run out of the tent about to explode and realize that you also forgot to pack the toilet paper. Right? A guide keeps you from those types of embarrassing situations. And God is Israel's wilderness guide. He's leading them from camp to camp, but now he seems to have made a rookie mistake. He brought them to a camp that doesn't have any fresh water. So they complain, they quarrel with Moses. Give us water to drink. You know, most commentators, they note that the word here, it is for quarreling, it's stronger than just complaining or grumbling. Sometimes this word is even used to describe something of like legal charges. So Job says in, in chapter 10-2 of Job, the book of Job, I say to God, do not declare me guilty, but tell me what charges, same word, you have against me. And so Moses responds, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And he's saying, a complaint against me is a complaint against God. Don't shoot the messenger. And Israel is fed up at this point. Right? By, by this stage in their journey, they love camping right, as, as much as some of you do. Right? I can't handle sleeping on the ground. I'm covered in dirt. I'm sticky and icky, and there's no shower in sight. And so they ask what many first-time backpackers do when they're carrying that you know, ill-fitting pack and trying to get up that first hill. Like, did you bring me out here just to kill me? And so Moses cries out to God. What am I going to do? They're about to stone me. Now, stoning wasn't just a, an act of mob violence. It was the way that a community brought justice to someone who had wronged them. This is maybe the, the, the first Twitter mob. They're about to cancel Moses. Judgment with no way of forgiveness. There's an impromptu trial forming in the desert. Moses, we're suing you for getting us into this mess. Now, do you know what these people ate for breakfast? Manna. In the very chapter right before this one, they didn't have food, and they complain, and so God provides manna, this bread from heaven, to feed them day after day. Every morning they would wake up to the smell of fresh manna outside. 
When there was no food, God provided food. Now they're into snow water, and you, they might think, okay, well, just like God provided food when there was no food, maybe God will provide water now that there's no water. But they don't do that. What do they do? They jump right to complaining. They set up a kangaroo court where they're going to act as judge, jury, and executioner. And we're not all that different. I mean, how many times has God answered one of your prayers, but then the next week you face something new, and you don't trust that God will provide like he did last week. You just get anxious like you did before, wondering, has God forgotten about me this time? So God then speaks to Moses, go out in front of the people. This isn't just so everyone can see Moses better. No, it's using the same language that describes where God's place was in this Israelite encampment. If you know the story, you know that God led the people from the front through a pillar of smoke or fire. So Moses is standing in God's assigned seat. And some of the elders come out as well. And then God tells them, make sure you take your staff. This staff represented God's presence, his power, the staff that parted the Red Sea. What Moses did with his staff represented God's actions. And here the staff is like a judge's gavel. And then God says, and I will stand before them by the rock, or as the ESV says, on the rock at Horeb. God is taking the stand. These people want a trial. They want someone to pay. And God doesn't stop it, but he goes along with it. You want a trial? Okay. You want someone to suffer for this? Okay. But you're going to have to try me. Moses, you take the gavel. You be the judge. Let's settle this now and punish the guilty. And this brings us to our second point, the verdict. We've got this showdown in the desert, cowboy justice. And God doesn't lash out at them for doing this. As he very easily could, you, know, you ungrateful peahons, after I've done so much for you, this is how you treat me? Many of you know what that's like. For one of your kids or a sibling or a friend or maybe a parent who accuses you, you've never supported me. And you're like, haven't you realized for the past decade I have done so much and made so many sacrifices for you? And yet all they think about is all the things that you didn't do. And it rips your heart apart because you love them so much, but they don't see it. If anyone was justified at complaining, it would have been God. Did you forget about that living hell called Egypt I pulled you out of? Did you forget how they were throwing your babies into the river? The manna you ate this morning that's giving you the energy to complain against me? Did you forget that I gave that to you? But what does God say in his defense? Silence. Nothing. He doesn't stick up for himself. God doesn't lash out doesn't chew them out or wipe them out. He gives the gavel to Moses and says, you be the judge. God's on trial. And that's why this passage is so applicable for us today. C.S. Lewis wrote, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches the judge. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge God is in the dock. And the dock was almost like this mini jail cell that the accused used to kind of be sectioned off into during the trial. He would have to stand in the dock during the trial as the accused. And if God should have a reasonable definition, 
for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. But the important thing is that man is on the judge's bench and God is in the dock. And that's where some of you are. You've lodged a complaint against God. God, why don't you answer this prayer? God, why can't I get pregnant without a miscarriage? Why can't I be healed from this thing that I've been suffering for years? Why did you let me be sexually abused? Why was your life cut short? Why is there so much hate in our world? Why are there so many people suffering? Why is there so much death? God, if you're all powerful, that means you let this happen. Can we even trust you? You're the judge and God's in the dock. You've got a list of things that you want him to answer for. You have some idea of what your life should look like and it's not close to it. So God gives Moses the gavel, the rod of judgment, and says, strike the rock. I've got to imagine the Israelites had to get nervous at this point because Moses, as he raises his staff, like what's Moses going to do with this thing? They'd seen the power of it. They'd seen Moses humiliate Pharaoh with it. Is he about to destroy us? They they probably have that look in their face that your kids might do when they realize they pushed you too far and you're about to snap, right? And they realize, oh shoot, I shouldn't have done that. So they hold their breath as Moses swings the staff down, but it's not pointed at them. Instead, it's pointed at God, the rock, and Moses strikes it, and water flows from the rock. Now, this event was seared in Israel's memory. They remembered it every year at the, uh, in the, the Feast of Booze. Uh, the Israelites, one of the things that they kind of added to the celebration was they would take a golden jug and fill it with water outside of Jerusalem. And then there would be this great parade as the people would kind of reenact their wanderings through the wilderness. And they would take this parade, the high priest would have this jug of water and they would walk into Jerusalem singing songs to God. And when they would get to the temple, the high priest would pour that jug out into a basin reenacting our passage when God poured water out of the rock to give to his people. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, we actually observe this taking place. It's the Feast of Booze, and then it says in there, on the last day, the climax of the festival, so probably when this ceremony is taking place, as the high priest is pouring out that water, reminding the Israelites of how God poured out the water in the desert, the text says in John 7, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Jesus is saying, I'm the water from the rock. I'm what your soul needs. And then Paul connects one more dot to make this all click by retelling the Exodus story, but with a couple surprising twists in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. He writes, all of them ate the same spiritual food, And all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. You see, on that day, in the heat of the desert, when emotions 
are just boiling over. And Israel gathered for vigilante justice against their God. And Moses was told by God to strike the rock. It wasn't God paying for his own mistakes. It was God paying for his people's sins. It's showing us a preview of the cross. That God didn't just stand in the dock. He took his seat in the electric chair or the cross. And when Moses struck that rock, the rock was Christ. Christ was rendered guilty. His body was broken. And for who? A bunch of ungrateful people who couldn't stop complaining to God. A bunch of people who were eager to let God have it for how he'd messed up their life, or how he'd brought them out here, and how he'd ruined everything. People who had a list of every way in which God had failed them. God doesn't dangle the promise of water out there saying, well, hey, all right, guys, you want water? You better get your act together. Then I'll give you the water. He doesn't say, if you say you're sorry, then I'll give you the water. If you admit you're wrong and that you've been complaining this whole time, then I'll give you the water. No, what does God do? He says, you all are guilty. You all are complaining. But I'll be struck. He took the wound his people deserved. He split his heart open, poured himself out to save a bunch of ungrateful people who couldn't stop complaining. And that is what Jesus did for you. And this brings us to our third point, the rock. Easter isn't just this collection of kind of quasi-unbelievable stories. There are bunnies that lay eggs, people that rise from the dead. Easter is the day that resets our whole calendar, our life. It's the day when we see how much God loves sinners. That he would be judged for our failures. That he would be wounded for our sins. That he would volunteer to pay the price for sins he never committed. Right? Let me be struck for their sins. Let me be split open. So that you do not get what you deserve. Christ gets what you deserve. He drinks the sour wine of judgment so you can lap of the living waters of God. Easter shows us that God loves sinners and that he would hold us no matter what, no matter the cost. He would not let us go even if it killed him. And in his death, he would give us life. And the resurrection is the proof not just that God has conquered evil, but that he has conquered the evil in you. That your sin, your failure, though awful enough to bring Christ into the grave, was not powerful enough to keep him there. Jesus' resurrection was the first day of your new life. Your life after judgment. Your life when there is nothing left to fear. Your life of drinking of the goodness of God. And knowing that all of your sins have been taken from you. And see, the cross and the resurrection are intricately linked. Without the cross, you never see how broken you are. Without the resurrection, you never find hope for sinners. Jesus' resurrection ended our judgment. We long for justice because there are deep evils in this world. Right? We just were reminded of it this morning, of what's happening in Myanmar. 
So much wrong takes place. Innocence is robbed every single day. But the problem with us and our world is when we try to then take God's justice into our own hands, it's too heavy for us. We get dragged down with it. It becomes this acid that eats your soul. Because your mind is, is always engaged in being angry about someone or something. We long for justice, but we have no way to forgive. And the only way for you to forgive those who have wronged you is to look to Jesus. The innocent one who looked into the deepest, darkest horrors of this world, stepped into them and said they're mine. And let his life be squashed under the horror of them. He stood in the place of sinners. He suffered the judgment of a holy God. He endured your hell so that you could bask in his love and drink his water. And Jesus doesn't hold a grudge for this. He's not resentful for doing it. He does it because he loves you so much. And then he emerged from the tomb, leaving all of your sin, your baggage, your past behind, never to come out again. And the author of Hebrews applies this passage to us. He writes, that is why the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. Speaking of this passage, the mercy that God has shown you day after day, when you hated God, when you've been complaining about everything in your life or how it's turned out, when you've got the grudge, the mercy that God has shown you in those days when you were blind to it, the mercies that you woke up with this morning for what you ate for breakfast, all of that was meant to lead you to repentance, to humble yourself and to turn to Him and to realize, I've been so wrapped up in myself, I haven't seen my God. And I haven't trusted him. I've been trying to play God instead of trust him. So what will you do today with God's mercy? Will you use it to then forgive others? To free yourself from those cycles of judgment? Or will you continue to take it for granted as you judge and complain about everybody else? Or will you... Take his mercy and then try to satisfy your soul with those little gifts instead of finding the waters of Christ alone. Herman Bovink wrote, In this consists in the greatness and miserableness of man. He longs for truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest and yet throws himself from one diversion upon another. He pants for permanent and eternal bliss and seizes on the pleasure of a moment. He seeks for God and loses himself in the creature. He forsakes the fountain of living waters and hews out broken cisterns that can hold no water. He is a hungry man who dreams he has eaten, and when he awakes, finds his soul is still empty. How many of you spend the day running after all of these things to try to fill with water, to try to eat, to wake up the next morning and realize your soul is just as empty. And maybe part of the reason why so many of us are stuck in this downward spiral of judgment and anger isn't so much because of everyone else's wrongs, which there are lots of them, 
but it's because we're afraid to admit our souls are empty. And pointing out others' flaws somehow seems to fill a little bit of that. But the only way to be free from it is to admit that you deserve the same judgment that those you love to hate do. That the same sin runs in them that runs in you. And then to realize that Jesus paid it all. And if you go through your entire life and refuse to admit your own sin, that rock which provides living water will be the rock that crushes you. First Peter brings this up where he writes of Jesus, He is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. So what will Jesus be to you? The fountain of living waters? Or the rock that crushes you? The only way is when we come to that rock on our knees, knowing nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I claim, and drink of the blessings of God, because he has suffered our punishment. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, God. Help us to admit the darkness in our own hearts and lives. Help us to see how we've been wrapped up in complaining and not trusting you. And yet you and your great love for us didn't hold that against us. But you were struck so we could live. Father, help us not just to say the words of Easter, but to live them, that Jesus is alive. And he is feeding my soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.